0: Matthew 27, verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor. This section recounts the Roman phase of Jesus' trial. The first major phase was the Jewish phase, and that was bad enough. But now, our Lord stands before the Roman governor. That word governor keeps getting repeated. Verse 2, verse 11, verse 14, verse 21. Verse 21. Matthew wants you to feel the weight of it. And this governor sits there on his judgment seat. And he judges our Lord. This should not be. Everything about this story is wrong. This governor should not be Jesus' governor. Jesus is the governor of Pilate. Jesus is the judge of Pilate. Jesus should be sitting and Pilate should be standing. And yet at this moment, their roles are reversed. Jesus stands before the governor who sits in judgment on him. Let's pray together. And then see what happens next and think about what it means for us today. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for giving us your word. It hurts sometimes to read. When we read this, and we really pay attention to what is going on, we are shocked and horrified to see the injustice and the wrongness, the the darkness of this story. But you want us to get that. You want us to see what, what really is. The Bible's not all hearts and rainbows and candy land. The Bible is the jagged, real edges of real life in this broken world. And this is the worst thing that's ever happened. So help us, Lord, to see it with new eyes, to hear it with our ears, and to take it to heart this morning. Lord, help me to preach your word faithfully. Thank you for giving it to us, even when it hurts. We pray this in the name of this one who stood before the governor for us. Amen. The Jews have obviously told Pilate the charges against Jesus. And they have not emphasized that Jesus has, in their opinion, blasphemed. Right? I mean, that's what they were so upset about. In the Jewish phase of the trial, blasphemy is what Jesus has done. And Rome says, blasphemy, I don't care about blasphemy. Don't bother me with blasphemy. Jesus has claimed to be worthy of sitting at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds as the Son of Man to judge the world. That's what caused the Jews to tear their robes. But what they've told the Roman governor was that Jesus claimed to be a king. And that means that Jesus might be a threat to the Roman Empire. He doesn't look like much of a threat, does he? He hasn't mounted a rebellion. He hasn't fomented a revolution. He hasn't armed an army. The people have loved him, that's for sure. But he mostly has acted like a teacher, a debater, sometimes a healer. If anything, he's a fiery prophet and not a king. Yeah, he's caused a bit of a ruckus in the temple this week, but nothing much for Rome to be concerned about. And yet here he is, standing before the governor on trial for his very life. So Pilate asks him a question. What do you think that question is going to be? This is the Gospel of Matthew here, a little hint. Keep your eye on the ball. Who are you? This question will be all about the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? Matthew 27, verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Or the very short little Greek phrase there could be translated, You say so, or You said it. We might say today, you're not wrong. Jesus must say that because it's true. Though he is not a king of the Jews the way Pilate fears he is, at least not primarily, Jesus has bigger things in his sights than kicking Rome out of Palestine. But yes, he is the king of the Jews. Yes, he is. But that's all he's going to say. Verse 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, you could just hear them yelling at him in the Roman court, accusation after accusation. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. I have just three points I want to make this morning. Here's number one. Jesus stood before the governor in perfect control. In perfect control. Haven't we seen this again and again in Matthew chapters 26 and 27? The passion of Jesus Christ is no accident. This is not just something that others choose for Him. Jesus chooses it for Himself. You look at Jesus here and He is completely in control of Himself. He never has this look on his face. Perfect self-control. They've spit on him. Would you have perfect self-control if somebody spit on you? They've beat him and they've played, who hit you? Who hit you? How would you respond? He is so calm. He is so cool. He is so collected. Now, he is sad. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's not dispassionate. But he's not out of control in any way. He's in perfect control of himself. He is majestic. He is dignified. He has the bearing of a king. Remember, at this moment, he could call down, he still can call down as much angelic air support as he wants. 72,000 angels at his command, all he has to do is say the word, go, or come. But instead, he chooses silence. To the great amazement of the governor, Pilate is like, "What? what is going on here? What do I have on my hands? Pilate does not know what to make of him. Don't you hear what these guys are saying about you? Aren't you going to defend yourself? Are you saying that you're guilty? I'm not exactly sure if Pilate respects Jesus or is frustrated by his silence or probably both. He's probably mystified that Jesus would not open his mouth. Why didn't he open his mouth? You know why he didn't open his mouth, right? Matthew knows it. Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Those words were written 700 years before Jesus was born. And here he is living them out. With perfect self-control. Is that astounding? Jesus is choosing all of this. He is choosing to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is choosing to be the ransom for many. He is choosing to be the lamb that was being led to slaughter. He is choosing not to open His mouth. And friends, our very salvation depends on it. If Jesus bleats, if if Jesus protests, or defends, or, or stops this whole thing, then we are not saved. It all hinges on His perfect self-control. Our salvation is on the line here. But our Lord is more than suited to the task. Listen to verse 14 again. But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Praise God for His self-control. Praise God for his willingness to fulfill Isaiah 53. Can you imagine choosing to be the guy that lives out Isaiah 53? All your life you read Isaiah 53 and you say, someday I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be that guy. No. Nobody wants to be the guy that lives out Isaiah 53. But Jesus said, just if you could take away this cup, take it away. But not my will, but your will be done. You could be thankful that I wasn't called to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. We would all be doomed. Because I so often lack self-control. And I certainly can't control all the events swirling around me. But praise God, Jesus stood before the governor. In perfect control of himself and of the whole situation. Now, of course, Pilate thinks that he's in control. And he wants to maintain that control. It's taken him a while to become the governor of Judea. He did did it for ten years. And he wants to stay the governor of Judea. And he thinks he knows a way out of his predicament. You know, Pilate is in a bit of a predicament here. To Pilate, Jesus is obviously not a threat to Rome. I mean, just look at him. <clears throat> There's something else going on here, and he's smart enough to figure that out. But Pilate can't just say, no, we'll just let him go. Pilate has to balance everybody's competing interests. He's got to keep the Sanhedrin happy because he needs a good relationship with the, the local leadership. And he's got to keep Tiberius Caesar happy because he's his boss. And he could get fired or killed or both. And recently, his the middle manager had been killed. The guy that was like, uh, I was reading in my history book this week that the guy that was in the, um, like the um, sponsor of Pilate had run afoul of Caesar and had been fired and killed. So he's in a predicament. He's got to make Rome happy. And at the same time, he's got to worry about the people that he's governing. And what they think. So, so Pilate gets an idea. And here's his idea. It's a reality TV show kind of idea. Let's have a contest. In front of everybody. Let's put it up for popular vote and let's vote somebody off of the island. Okay, Let's make it a show. Crowd's choice. Verse 15. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. Yeah, let's use that. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, which literally means son of the father. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, he asks the crowd, which one of you do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. You see, Pilate knows the score. He reads this situation right. The Sanhedrin, he thinks the Sanhedrin hate Jesus because he's so popular. Is he right? Of course he's right. It's envy, plain and simple. It's more than that, but it's not less. He's rising in popularity. We're going down. It's a ratings game. So Pilate thinks this Jesus guy is popular. He's got great ratings. I heard what happened on Sunday when he rode into town on his little donkey. Hosanna! 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 That was just Sunday. This is Friday. On Sunday, they were shouting, Hosanna! So Pilate thinks this crowd is going to vote for Jesus. Oh, yeah, the Sanhedrin don't like him, but the people love him. Well, let the people decide, and then he'll be out of my hands. This other guy, Barabbas, he's a notorious prisoner. The other Gospels tell us that he was violent and a murderer and probably a rebel insurrectionist. He was a terrorist. Barabbas was one bad hombre. Who would want that guy to be released? Nobody's going to want that, Pilate thinks. By the way, one of the earliest manuscripts indicate that Barabbas had the first name of Jesus. Does some of your Bibles say Jesus Barabbas? Or at least in a footnote? Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, son of the father. Coincidence? I think not. So Pilate gives the crowd the choice between the two Jesuses. Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas? Or Jesus who is called Messiah? This should be a no-brainer, right? But this story just gets worse. Verse 19, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, he's seated, Jesus is standing. His wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, that righteous man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Oh man, is that interesting. Did you know that little detail of the story? This is the only gospel that tells us this, and it doesn't tell us any more than this. I'd like to know more about this dream. Every dream in the, in the Gospel of Matthew is a message from the Lord. I think probably this one too. I don't know what all this means, but I do know it means one thing. Guys, listen to your wives. I'm serious, actually. The women in the Gospel of Matthew are much wiser than most of the men. And this is a Gentile woman, a Roman woman, and she knows the score. I wonder if we'll meet her someday in the new heavens and the new earth. If only Pilate had listened to her. If only the crowd had listened to her. But instead, they listened to Jesus' enemies. They listened to the fakes and the snakes. Verse 20, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Here he's not leading, is he? He's following. Barabbas, they answered. What? That, that's not what I expected. Pilate has badly misjudged the crowd. Perhaps Barabbas was popular. Maybe Barabbas was seen as a Robin Hood type of person. He was anti-Rome, and the Jews liked that. Or maybe it didn't have much to do with Barabbas at all. Maybe they just come to hate Jesus. Verse twenty-two. What shall I do then with Jesus, who's called Christ? Pilate's getting desperate. Pilate asked. They all answered, "Crucify him." It just gets worse. Crucify Him? Do you know what that means? Do you know what crucifixion is? Don't forget to keep your eye on the ball. Notice that this is still all about the identity of Jesus. Jesus, He says, who is called Christ. The whole question is, is Jesus who He says He is? The leaders all say, no! And the crowd says, no! Crucify Him. They act like He is guilty, but that's as far from the truth as possible. Jesus stood before the governor in perfect innocence. Pilate's wife was right. He is an innocent man. And Pilate knows it too, doesn't he? Look at verse 23. Why? That's the governor talking. He's he's yelling back to the crowd. Why? What crime has he committed? That's the judge. Yelling at the people he's deputized to be the jury. This is wrong. What crime has he committed? The answer is none. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify Him. Pilate's lost control. He's not governing anything. This is mob justice, which is perfect injustice. What crime has he committed? It is we who have committed the crimes. Jesus is innocent of them. He is not just silent like a lamb going to the slaughter. He is innocent like a lamb going to the slaughter. He is blameless like a lamb going to the slaughter. And he still doesn't open his mouth. So Pilate is afraid of a riot. but he's still a consummate showman. So he calls for a bowl of water and motions for the crowd to hush. Verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. I think there's two things going on there at the one time. One is that he's mocking the Sanhedrin, especially the Pharisees. Because remember, they have these elaborate hand washings, don't they? Remember that from chapter 15? He's saying, look at me, I'm washing my hands. That's what you guys are all about. He might have even known that they hated Jesus for what the Lord had said about their hand washings. But the other thing he's doing so dramatically in front of everybody is trying to get out of responsibility for what is about to happen. This is where we get our phrase, washing our hands of it. I'm innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility, which of course is not true. Nice try, Pilate. Swing and a miss. You can't wiggle out of this responsibility so easily. Notice that Pilate is actually worse than Judas. Judas at least took responsibility for the blood of this innocent man. Even if he didn't repent and return to him. Pilate tries to beg off responsibility for the blood of this innocent man. It doesn't work. And then it gets worse. Verse 25, all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. That's even worse. They say, we'll take full responsibility, just crucify him. They want to be held responsible for killing the Messiah which is just like Jesus said it would be. You think about his parables. He told this one earlier this very week. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. When he rented the vineyard farmers, then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus said, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And now this crowd says, let his blood be on us and on our children. And within a generation, Jerusalem would be left desolate and the temple destroyed. Because Jesus is innocent. And they were not. They were responsible. Pilate was responsible. And friends, you and I are responsible too. Jesus is innocent. But we we are sinful. We are the reason why Jesus is staying silent. Because he's going to take our place. He stood before the human governor so that we could one day stand before the divine governor. Because he was standing in perfect control. Because he was standing in perfect innocence. He could be our perfect sacrifice. Our perfect substitute. The lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Right before that sentence in Isaiah 53 about the lamb that did not open his mouth is this sentence. Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Don't get used to this. I know we sing about it every Sunday. This is why we meet on Sundays. This is why we have the communion. This is why we sing the songs that we sing and the hymnal back here. It's why we we come back to it again and again. Why we're all about the cross. Don't get used to it, because it's the most amazing and glorious and mind-bending thing there is. It's the gospel. Think about Barabbas. He also was supposed to stand before this governor, and he was as guilty as sin. That morning, he woke up in a prison cell, fully expecting to be crucified. And he knew that by law, he should be. In fact, the guy, you know, Jesus has a a criminal on both sides of him. They might have been partners of Barabbas on either side of him. They all, the same word for robber or thief or rebel insurrectionist. Might have been part of Barabbas' team on either side of him. And that day, Jesus took his place and Barabbas walked away free. Jesus was his perfect substitute. It was a complete injustice, but it was all grace to Barabbas. Same is true for us, isn't it? We deserved what Jesus went through. He went through all of this for us. Last verse, verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. It just gets worse. That word flogged doesn't sound so bad. I don't know, because it rhymes with frog, you know. Until you find out what it really means. It means that they took a whip, and at the end of the Bands that come off the whip. They have little shards of metal or little pieces of bone. And the whip tore his flesh. They probably stripped him down to the waist and tied him to a pillar or a pole. And they whipped him, and they whipped him, and they whipped him. There would be no mercy. He has been judged guilty. You know, you can get flogged before your sentence to get the truth out of you. You know, kind of rough them up a little bit to get the truth out of them. But they go easy on you before you're convicted. But now he's been convicted by the Jews, and he's been convicted by the Romans. This is after the sentence. It's okay if he dies during the scourging. It often happened. Many of these prisoners did not survive the floggings. The whip would tear at the flesh until sometimes the skeleton and the internal organs would be revealed. This assured, this helped make sure that the crucifixions didn't last too long. There's no anesthesia There's no kindness. There's only suffering. There's only sacrifice. And he chooses it. He stood before the governor in perfect control and perfect innocence as our perfect sacrifice. And he did it for us.